have uh, come to the May session of Apologetics and Evangelism. And I'm looking forward to, uh, as we come to this session, I'm actually looking forward to uh, a series that we're going to be doing in the summer on the full armor of God. Uh, I've taught that before uh, back in another church, and I look forward to uh, bringing out that material and uh, refreshing it and bringing it to our church uh, because it's essentially... Ephesians 6 is all about sanctification, so it's a really exciting passage, and then we're going we're gonna to do what we've been doing through the Lord's Prayer. I'll teach a portion on Ephesians 6, and then we'll pray through the themes that are brought up in that uh, section of Scripture that we, we go through. So it's going to be a wonderful time together, and I'm really excited to share all that with you. But we do need to kind of wrap up this uh, series that we started in January on evangelizing what we're calling evangelizing the sub-Christians. And so, Lord willing, we'll do that tonight. I, I do hope you find this material practically useful in your efforts to share the gospel. Um, we have talked uh, over the past few months, talked about a number of forms of sub-Christian Christianity. Uh, they are antinomianism, moralism, liberalism, minimalism, nominalism, and politicism. That's a lot of isms. And tonight we're going to talk about one more, uh, relativism. I could add to that list, actually, and I'm curtailing this because we've got to stop somewhere. But <clears throat> tonight we'll talk about relativism. And first I want to sort of ask, I want to begin by asking a question uh, to sort out why we have taken the time to discuss all these isms. What is the point? Why is it important that we do that? We've got a couple of microphones, and so make sure your hand shoots up. Why don't run here and Wayne's got one. want to make sure uh, you guys ask the questions uh, on the microphone, okay? Because we want to get it recorded. Go ahead, Wayne. Okay, good. So, but that, you know, and I'm, I'm actually, would you apply that comment to what I'm calling sub-Christian Christianity? What's the network of worldview and stuff that informs that? Good. Okay. So different forms of inoculating the sinner against the one true gospel. That's very well said. Uh, did you raise your hand too? Okay. His comment is good. Okay. Oh, was there another comment over here? Yeah. Brett. Okay. Yeah. Good. Good. So it's, it's easy to slip into sub-Christian forms of thought. And that's really important that we don't do that uh, because it's damning heresy. Very well said. Thank you. In all of those isms, uh, you guys can just sit close. <laughs> um, but in all those isms, by, by either some emphasis in the form or in some lack of emphasis, all of those isms end up getting the gospel wrong. Um, that's the issue. Where there is getting the gospel wrong, there is danger. And that's what we're concerned about. And, and we're concerned because in especially in America, and you know, there are different flavors of it through different parts of the country, but in our country, uh, it's what Wayne said, many people have been inoculated against the gospel that we preach because they've heard all the words we're using, sin, judgment, heaven, hell, Jesus, love, all of that stuff. They've grown up with all that in Sunday school, and they've come to suck the truth out of those terms and inject something false into those terms, just like the cults have done. So that's what we're concerned about because we're going to be dealing with these people. Uh, we live 
and move and have our being among them. They're all around us. They're our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends. We, we love these people. <clears throat> so we need to bring the gospel to them because we're concerned for them. So, as I said, sometimes it's an emphasis or a lack of emphasis. Sometimes it's a subtle denial of doctrine or uh, even, even a bold denial of doctrine. Uh, sometimes it's just a distortion of some point of the gospel, but it often has to do with the implications of the gospel, the demands of the gospel on our lives, the demands of holiness on our thoughts and words and actions and all of that. As we begin tonight, I'd like you to turn your Bibles to, I'm actually going to have you turn to two passages. First, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and then put your finger there in 2 Corinthians 11. And once you, so get, get to 2 Corinthians 11, put your finger there, I've got a bookmark I'm going to use, and then go to Galatians, Galatians chapter 1. I want to give you a couple of what you might call jugular texts in dealing with, with any so-called Christianity. And, and you just need to know that, you know, Paul, this is nothing new, Paul, has, Paul dealt with sub-Christian Christianity in the first century. He dealt with it in Scripture. And we are dealing with it. Many churches through our city, many churches throughout our region, throughout our state, throughout the country, they have all the words and all the forms of worship and all the services and sing the, some of the same songs we do. But they're not Christian. It's really, it's really a stark thing for me to say that. But you need to understand that many of them have departed. Many of them have departed. We're going to talk about some of, that, uh, some of that tonight. But Paul dealt with that here in Galatians, and he dealt with it in 2 Corinthians as well. Here in, uh, in Galatians chapter 1, you've, you've heard this text before, but here it is again. Paul says in Galatians 1.6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who calls you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel of heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. Now stopping there, go back to six, verses 6 and 7. I'm astonished, he says, that some of you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, turning to a different gospel. Does anybody know what the different nature of that gospel was for the Galatian, in the Galatian church, in the Galatian region? Uh, Doug, right back there. Okay, so it's, it's kinda, you can kind of hear some of, these, uh, some of the emphasis and kind of a return to Jewish roots stuff in our day. And you know what, you know what the, the situation was? is that they actually didn't take any of the gospel that Paul and the apostles preached. They didn't deny any of those elements. Verbally deny it. They would say, hey, we affirm that totally. It's just that now this allows you to go get circumcised, follow the laws of Moses, and come into the fullness of your salvation that way. And Paul says, that's a different gospel. They weren't, they weren't overtly, verbally denying any element and yet they were adding to the gospel. It makes it a different gospel. And so here it says in verse 7, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Interesting that he says that. He's talking about their motives. 
Paul is saying they want to distort the gospel. You go to any of those Judaizing preachers, you think they're going to tell you, yeah, I just want to distort the gospel of Christ in my preaching. That's what I'm after. No, they don't say that at all. They, they want to bring you into the fullness of what it means to be God's child. We want to bring you into the full fullness of the people of God. They're, they're all about your good, aren't they? They're all about your joy. They're all about your blessing. But Paul says, no, down deep inside, they want to distort the gospel. They're never going to tell you that. They're never going to put that on their blog, but that's what they're doing. Okay? So, it's a similar tone that Paul takes with the Corinthian believers. And this involves in Galatians 1 the danger of them embracing a different gospel. The word there in Greek is the word heteros, different. And it's the word, it can be translated, the word can be translated another. There are two words in Greek that are translated as another. One of them is alos, which refers to another of the same kind. And then the other word is heteros, which means another, but of a different kind. Alos, heteros. Another of the same kind, another of a different kind. This is why he says you're turning to a different gospel that is a heteros gospel, one that is heterodox, not orthodox. Then in verse 7, Paul quickly adds, not that there is another one, that not that there is another that is an alos gospel. There isn't one of the same kind. There's not two. There's only one. So his point is that as soon as you Follow those who are distorting the gospel of Christ even a little bit, even an iota. You've departed from the only gospel that there is. And that is what we're trying to say about all these sub-Christian Christianity movements. As I said, we've talked about antinomianism and moralism, two opposite but honestly very prevalent errors within the uh, evangelical umbrella which undermine the gospel. Um, also living within the tent, the big tent of evangelicalism, are Christian liberalism, uh, Christian minimalism, then also Christian nominalism, politicism, all those isms that distort the gospel, pervert the gospel, and they turn people away from the only gospel that there is. Antinomianism, just as a very brief review, denies the gospel by keeping people in bondage to sin. It's an anti-law gospel. Moralism denies the gospel by keeping in people in bondage to self-righteous works. Liberalism, we talked about, denies the gospel fundamentally by embracing the world's theology, wisdom, the world's agenda. It recasts all of this in social terms. Salvation is a social justice issue. Um, but it's, it's a worldly form of thinking. It, it distracts people away from eternal things, from true sin before a holy God and true righteousness through Christ. Minimalism, that distorts the gospel by radical reduction such that people don't even understand the gospel, the theology, uh, the theology of the gospel at all. This is, we were talking about Christian minimalism. We're talking about those, you know, four ways to heaven, five ways, three ways. You know, we're talking about simplify it. Just keep it really, really simple so people don't get confused. Let's keep the cookies on the bottom shelf for everyone and don't tell them too much because after all, we just want to close the deal, get them into the church, and then we can tell them all the hard stuff, all the fine print. That doesn't help. If they don't understand it, then they can't believe it. And if they don't believe it, then they cannot be saved. That's the problem with a minimalistic approach. Christianity is not at all about minimizing doctrine. 
It has to do, yes, with the simplicity of devotion to Christ, but the simplicity is about a profound theology that's found in the New Testament. Think about all those, you know, where we get the most profound theology out of the, the letters of Paul. He wrote those as letters to regular Joes. He wrote those to, to folks out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, right, Joe? Regular Joes, just like you. Um, it's very convenient to have that name, isn't it? Ah, a couple of Joes. You're not a regular Joe. He's a regular Joe. <laughs> That's why he's wearing that wild shirt. He's got to do something to break forth, burst forth, the, uh, get out of the regular. So uh, we talked about antinomianism, moralism, liberalism, minimalism, nominalism. That denies the gospel by embracing its oppos- the opposite of the gospel. Nominalism says you can get into the kingdom of heaven just by simply saying, Lord, Lord. And Jesus says, no, you can't. Um, That's totally contrary to something like Luke 9.23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That is a radical, it's called a radical discipleship. The end of you and all about him. Politicism perverts the gospel, making the gospel and Christ and God's interests slaves to nationalistic political interests. That's a denial of the gospel takes the focus off hef- heavenly citizenship and uses the Christian form of religion to stir up a voting base to turn people out to get the favorite politicians elected, get more moral legislation, save America and all the rest. The gospel turns, of the politicized gospel, turns citizens of heaven into citizens of this world, exactly the opposite of what God intends. So anyone who persuades you in that direction is trying to persuade you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. No matter what they tell you, they want to distort the gospel. So one more we have going to cover for tonight is Christian relativism, but I want you to look very quickly now. It's, it's 2 Corinthians. I had you turn there, so go back there to 2 Corinthians 11. And uh, we're going to look at verses 2 and following. And I want you to see, I want to I talk in this section about the motivations of those who come peddling other Gospels, which are not another, alos, but they are counterfeit. They're heteros. They're false Gospels and not Gospel at all. Look at uh, for, uh, 2 Corinthians 11.2. Paul says, I feel a, a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. So you see three things there, a, a different Je- another Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. Paul is concerned there in 2 Corinthians that there are false servants of Christ. And these are people who wave the banner of Christianity, and they have been preaching another Jesus than the one that the apostles proclaimed. And Paul isn't specific here uh, about the nature of this another Jesus, but it could refer to anything Lesser than the true Jesus that we read about in the Gospels. Anything that does not fit that particular mold that the Spirit has given, that is another Jesus. Okay, so he's talking about that. 
could be a Gnostic Jesus. There were elements of incipient Gnosticism all through the Greco-Roman world. Could have been something like that. A Jesus who wasn't fully man, who was uh, just appeared to be physical in a physical body, but was actually a, uh, kind of this superhuman being who had no, no physical elements. Could be the liberal Jesus, uh, the purely human Jesus of history. Uh, could be a Jesus who's all about a false form of love that is so prominent today, a love that affirms everything, every kind of sin, even homosexual sin. Also in verse 4, uh, you can see these false apostles, they not only teach a, another Jesus or present another Jesus, but they advocate for and they, they teach, they bring in a different spirit from the one you received. That, again, is the word heteros. It's different in the sense that it's not the same kind at all as the true Spirit of God. There is a lot of that going on in the charismatic and Pentecostal quarters of evangelicalism. Whenever you turn on TBN and see that spirit, uh, that is a heteros spirit. That has got nothing whatsoever to do with the Holy Spirit. The one that I think is especially prominent in our day, though, has to do with a spirit that is an unholy spirit. One that wants to allow a sinner to remain fixed in his sin, his or her sin, um, his, her, or uh, gender-questioning sin, right? Someone recently sent me a news story. Uh, this comes from Colorado's news channel, Channel 9, about a pastor over here in Berthoud, Colorado, who felt the need to apologize to the LGBTQ community. Listen, if you want instant positive publicity for your church this is what you do today you apologize to the lgbtq community and then you're in and then you get your story your church is is uh uh put on nine news in an affirming way the uh the newscaster as he's going through the story said you know it's it's we love to show stories uh, from time to time on Channel 9 here that show people who, you know, have come to realize that they're wrong. Could be a, you know, teacher, could be a fireman, whatever. It could be a pastor. It's okay. You can admit you're wrong. That spirit is rife today. Pastor told his congregation, he said, quote, for a long time the church has not been a safe place for LGBT people. In fact, it has too often been a place of hurt, rejection, condemnation, and trauma. End quote. Let me tell you, first of all, these days, all the hurt, rejection, condemnation, and trauma is going only in one direction. It's unleashed mercilessly, mercilessly on those who will not get on board with the sexual revolution. This comes up in your family. This comes up in your family. You're going to find a lot of hurt, rejection, condemnation, and trauma coming your direction from everybody else. Second of all, though, I'd like to know what this pastor means by the church. What is he talking about when he's talking about the church? Because all the churches that I know and I've been a part of, they speak the truth and love to all kinds of sinners. They're outlined in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Churches I've been a part of put 
that list before people and say, listen, if you fall into this category, any of these categories of unrighteousness, you won't inherit the kingdom. Is it loving to withhold that information and that warning from sinners of any kind, even homosexual sinners? It's interesting what the ESV translates there in 1 Corinthians 6 as men who practice homosexuality. It's actually cramming two words into one description there. The Greek uses two words, malakos and arsenikoites, and it's referring to, uh, respectively, to the passive partner and the active partner in a male homosexual relationship. Is this apologetic pastor going to tell them the truth about those sins? That practicing those sins exclude them from the kingdom of God? Not likely. I'm uh, a big international rugby fan, and there's a, there's a professing Christian who plays for the Australian national team. He's playing professional rugby in a, in a, in a league that uh, is, is um, you know, a Super 15 league that, that is in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and all that. And, and uh, some reporter asked him, point blank, it was a setup, hey, what happens to homosexuals, you know, who don't believe in your God or something like that? And he said, well, they'll go to hell if they don't, unless they repent of their sin. Well, hell, unless they repent, is all that made it onto the tweets and then ran through the Twittersphere and, and uh, erupted into get rid of that guy. So he is now pulled off, disciplinary action, pulled off of his team, the rugby world, and all the commentators are saying, yeah, it's just terrible when you have that kind of bigotry and, and all that. Very few, one article I read, defended his right to actually hold opinion, but the rest of the world is calling for his head. He is one of the most talented, uh, upright, upstanding guys, and he's been vilified, demonized in this whole issue. This pastor in Bertha told his congregation, all people matter to God, and that Jesus, he told them that Jesus would have embraced anyone, no matter the sexual identity. Okay, he'll embrace anyone, but he will not let their sin go. This, we heard that this morning. This woman's sins, which are many. He's dealing with the sin. He also says the purpose of the sermon, this is the, back to the article, the purpose of his sermon, hour-long sermon apologizing to the LGBTQ community, is to draw people who've been pushed away from the church back into the community. There, right there, is the motivation. He's trying to grow a dying church. He's been a liberal for a long time. He sees the numbers dwindling, and he wants to bring people back. He called on his congregants to uh, welcome the LGBTQ community, even if they don't agree with their sexual orientation. He says the sermon was partially prompted by statistics he's recently seen. Quote, about 84% of those in the LGBTQ community were raised in some kind of faith community, and about 56% of them left when they turned 18, he said. He says he was also struck by another statistic, that teens questioning their sexual orientation who sought religious counseling were more likely to kill themselves. So he says, I cannot stay silent on this. This pastor named Clay Peck, he told his congregation, I cannot stay silent on this. I can't change the world, but I can change myself. This pastor at what's called Grace Place in Berthoud, Colorado, may, he may well have reinvented himself as a moral creator, uh, crusader, I shouldn't say creator, crusader for the LGBT community, but he has 
in so doing, departed from the gospel. And when he's departed from the gospel, he's departed from the only hope that leads people out of sin. Because Paul tells the Corinthians, continuing in that same passage after citing all those sins, then he says, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's the Jesus Paul preaches. That's the Spirit that he brings as a spirit of holiness. When pastors these days preach a tolerant, LGBTQ-embracing and condoning Jesus, they preach another Jesus. When they come in a spirit of tolerance and condoning sin, then they come in a spirit other than the Holy Spirit. And so we need to ask, what gospel do they actually believe and preach to others? What, if Jesus came, what did He come to die for? What is the point? So by preaching another Jesus, by preaching a different spirit, other than the spirit of holiness, these false apostles wanted the Corinthians to accept a different gospel from the one they had accepted. What happens when they accept a different gospel? When they preach a different gospel, they apostatize. They become apostates. And the spirit of apostasy is rife within contemporary evangelicalism. We, we are a dinosaur in this world. And I'm thankful because it goes right back to early Christianity. That's where our roots are. That's where we're going to stay by God's grace. I want to keep reading, though, in Second in Corinthians 11 because I want you to see the motivations that drove Paul, a true apostle, to the, uh, to the Corinthians, and also the motivations that drove the so-called super-apostles. They were driven by, by greed. Greedy for money, greedy for influence, greedy for fame, greedy for prominence, reputation, acceptance. A lot of hidden motivations, but the driving force of all false religion is always greed. Listen as we read the next section. I'm going to ask you a couple questions here about true and false motivations. So listen to starting in verse 5 and reading through verse 15. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you may be exalted because I preach God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia. By the way, we had some brothers coming from Macedonia today. They were part of Campus Crusade or crew and came and visited our churches. They're Macedonians. I'm like, man, that is so cool. You're from Macedonia. Philippi or Thessalonica? How's your church doing? I've read about it. And he looked at me like, that's a dumb joke. So, um, but true Macedonians right here. So anyway, uh, the, the brothers who came from Macedonia, verse uh, 9, middle verse 9, supplied my need. So I refrained and I will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows that I do. And what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 
So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So taking a breath, what motivated the Apostle Paul as he ministered and wrote to these Corinthians? Got a couple of mics. What, what motivated him? You can see it all through this text. A lot of good answers there. No, no, you need a microphone first. I heard that, but you need a microphone. I can't let you cheat even though you're related to me. So, Okay, you're related to me too. Is it, what's it? All my relations are taking microphones. All right, go ahead. Jesse, another one of my relations. Because he loved them. All right, because he loved them. Good. Good comment. 150 proof God. He, he got it directly from Christ, and he, he didn't mess with it at all. He just took it directly what he received and gave it to them. And then he let the Lord by the Spirit do the work. But he wanted to make sure he was faithful, so obedient, submissive to the message. That's what he was. Anybody else? There are more good answers here. What else? Let me, let me give you a clue, a little hint. Um, no, not, not another Allen family member. All right, go ahead. So verse 7, did I sin in humbling myself? Good. So humility, good. Somebody else. How, what else motivated Paul? What else characterized his ministry to the, to the uh, Corinthians here? And to all the churches. Okay, good. So, he, so again, a humility in seeing that I don't have the authority to touch this. This is God's gospel. I deliver it. Excellent, excellent. I love that word jealousy. And who is he siding with as he's jealous? Whose interests? God's interests. Yeah, he's, he's, in, he's, he's uh, siding with God and his interests. And so he's jealous for that affection, that, belong, that worship that belongs wholly and completely to God. He doesn't want to see it distorted or, or diminished in any way. Okay, so discernment characterizes, characterizes ministry. And, and actually a boldness and, a, and a, a courageousness to defend it. Good, in the face of opposition. Yeah, wait. Revelation, the revelation of God, the truth of Christ within him. I'm not touching that. I'm, I'm giving it directly to you just as I received it. Great. Yeah, very, very good point. I, I didn't write that down in my notes, but that's a great point. It's a, there is a, when he thinks about their end, he's also thinking about his own end. And that is, a, that is an attitude of the fear of the Lord. That's really good. Thank you. He, he is uh, he's showing a, a contrariness to what is false, right? And some people would say, oh, come on, Paul. Can't you just show a little grace toward these people that aren't as holy as you? Come on, Paul. Aren't you being a little bit um, narrow-minded? You know, just you, you're it, you know, got the apostle thing. I get it. Heard directly from Christ. But aren't you being a little persnickety, nitpicking about just some... These are, these are good guys. These are friends. Paul says, no, they're not operating on the same terms as I am. And I'm going to point that out. Yeah, he's, he's out to undermine them. He is not going to let them rest. He wants to undermine them and show a distinction between the truth and the false in the gospel. Okay, so not like, you know, whether or not we have pads on the pews or have drum kits or anything like that. That's not the issue. He's not def- going toe-to-toe on that. But he's going to go to the mattresses on the, the issues of gospel. Yeah, Fantastic, Chuck. Thank you. That's a great summary comment to just wrap it all up in a shepherding concern. That's exactly right. Thank you. It's great. Um, we, could, we could go on. Uh, there's a lot here. And, and one thing I want to point out is just how he 
humbled himself by working to make sure that he was not a burden to them. What is that? I mean, that's just love, right? He doesn't want anything to distract them from truth. He's very concerned for their souls, and he's going to work hard. He's even going to, quote-unquote, steal from other churches in order to give to them to make sure that they're not distracted by this, by any issue of money. And that actually turned into a reason that super apostles used to, to put down his ministry. See, he's not even a good enough speaker to actually pull in a good fee for his speaking. He's just not that eloquent. He's, he's not been trained in rhetoric like we have. I mean, I, I know, he's a, he's a scrawny-looking little old Jew. You know, he's, just, he's been beaten a lot and stuff. That's why his body looks the way it is. He's kind of ugly, and you know, his, his physical presence isn't that impressive, and that's why he doesn't really draw a big speaker fee or anything like that. He can't make it on the big conference stage like we can. Isn't that arrogant? But that's how they were treating him. He's saying, you want to know why I don't take, a, take money from you? It's to humble myself in order that nothing is going to distract from the gospel. It's not about money. I love that. The false apostles, on the other hand, were motivated by greed. Peter put it this way in 2 Peter 2.3, In their greed they will exploit you with false words. Or as the King James Version translates it, through covetousness they shall with feigned words make merchandise of you. Make merchandise. That's exactly what I watch happening throughout American churches today. They're making merchandise out of people and out of the gospel. They see you as a means to an end. So let me ask this question. What characterizes the ministry of false apostles, false teachers? Or we could even say hirelings. You understand what I mean when I make a distinction between a hireling and a false teacher? A hireling and a wolf? Okay, a wolf is a false teacher. A wolf is, is someone who is a ravenous um, someone who's going to chew up and eat sheep, okay? A hireling may be a Christian, but a hireling is someone who does it for pay. I mean, they're, just, they're just there to kind of punch the clock, you know, put in eight hours, 40-hour week, get, get to the golf course, get to whatever they got to do, get in the mountains. After all, we're in Colorado and pastors here, you got a lot, of, a lot of stuff to do in the mountains. You know, you really don't want to get too involved in the issues of people. I mean, it's thorny, right? So by, by kind of keeping a little bit of a surface uh, relationship with people, putting on a friendly face and shaking a lot of hands, kissing some babies, I can get in and out of here and, hey, we can go to the golf, cl- you know, golf range and knock some balls down the range and maybe go shooting and stuff like that. Um, no, that's not. That's a hireling right there. That's a hireling, okay? Hirelings are almost as bad as wolves, Almost because they don't actually chew sheep up. But. Okay, so what characterizes the ministry of false teachers or hirelings? Okay, these guys were people pleasers, and what did that gain them? Gained money, right? Gained an income. Yeah, they take no loving interest in the sheep. They could never say, I yearn for you with a godly jealousy. They don't. They have, they have no affection for the sheep. Yeah, without the suffering. Isn't it interesting that they came in like lecherous parasites he is the one who invested sweat blood and tears to see this church form right it's the holy spirit's power the holy spirit actually brought that church into existence christ is building it the apostle is putting his sweat blood and tears into this church and these false apostles come into a church already built and insinuate themselves in and steal the affections and loyalty of people they play what i call as absalom in the gates 
Hey, the Apostle Paul's been gone quite a while, hasn't he? Does not really care for you. Hey, but I'm here. Right. Okay, so pride in self, pride in accomplishment, pride in their super status as apostles. Exactly. That's what characterizes their ministry. And, and, they, uh, and, and as I said earlier, greed is not always about money. Greed can be about reputation. Greed can be about fame. It can be about influence. Um, how many followers and fans you have on the internet or whatever. Okay, good. Back to Joe's comment on the other side of it when he pointed to the very last verse, last sentence, their end will correspond to their deeds. They're not thinking about that. They're not thinking about their end. They're not thinking about an accountability before God. They have no fear of God before their eyes. That's right. Okay, one more. A true false gospel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. That's exactly right. Thanks for bringing it back there. That's, that's what, what, that's, that is what we need to see another Jesus, it's a subtle insinuation of just taking some, some edges off of Jesus and let's make him a little, let's just cast him a little bit differently, okay? Or a, a different spirit or a different gospel altogether. And so it says here, these men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And you could say the same thing today. They disguise themselves as shepherds. They disguise themselves as pastors. They disguise themselves as teachers of truth. They're not at all. They're not at all. They've departed. So, or they were never there to begin with. There's probably a better way to say that. Thanks, Adam. So, this is um, why Paul, and this is why all faithful ministers of the gospel who share the heart and spirit of Paul, which Chuck summarized as the heart of a shepherd, it's exactly the right uh, characterization, That's why he's going to continue in verse 12 to undermine the claim of false apostles and their boastful mission. That's why he's going to continue to confront them. He's going to continue to confront these deceitful workers who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. It's it's not for the sake of, hey, I'm the real apostle. He doesn't care about himself. He's already proven that. He's gone through pain and suffering for them. He's not concerned about his own flesh, his own comfort. He does all this for the sake of love. He does all of this for the sake of a concern to protect the church. And I just want you to know that I and others in this room feel that same jealousy for you. Like these Corinthians, you're betrothed to one husband. And my job, and our job, and you could say our job in leadership, but our job collectively as a church is to present one another to Christ as a pure virgin of Christ. We, we want no spot or stain or wrinkle or any such thing on this body, on this church. I don't ever want to see you deceived by the cunning of the serpent who is alive and active today. I don't want your thoughts to be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And sadly, that is happening. Not, I'm not seeing it in our midst, but it is happening. It's happened to so many churches for many decades now. It's been happening under the banner of evangelicalism. And now many of those dear people, deceived people, they've become our mission field. They've become the people that we need to evangelize. So all of that is an apologetic defense of why we've gone through these lessons over the past few months. Just to tell you, this is why. It's really, really important. We need to recapture what shepherding ministry really is. We need to recapture what the true Jesus teaches. That's why I'm teaching through Luke, and I'm going to go into Acts after that. You're like, when? I don't know, man. I don't know. Just pray that God gives me strength to live so I can do it. But 
But we're going through Luke because we want to hear straight from the Savior's mouth what he said Christianity is. Because there's a lot of false stuff going on out there. So, all that to say, that's an apologetic for uh, a bit of an introduction. Let's cover one last ism. Okay, then we're going to talk about how to engage these folks with the gospel and get kind of practical in how we work this out in a conversation with someone, okay? So I want to talk about Christian relativism, and here we're talking specifically about an ethical, moral relativism. We're talking about really an authoritative relativism today, um, very popular today. It's, it's grounded in a, in really, you could take this all the way back to a liberal ideology, liberalism, emphasizes the individual over the state or over any organization. So when, the, when it's every individual, we are created in the image of God, true. But when we all see our right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, well, what does that mean for every single individual? What does life look like for me? If, if I've got a, a transgender person, they say, life for me is to discover my true gender, my true identity. That is my life. And you, with your Bible, you're telling me there's only two genders. I deny that. I say that that's death, not life. You can't tell me that anymore. Life, liberty, your gospel is actually bringing chains around me. You hear that, that pastor's apology, his big confession there to the LGBTQ community? Oh, we've been killing you. We've been, you've been coming into our churches, coming into our counseling room, and you, you poor kids are being hurt by our message. Is that true? Maybe in some cases. Maybe in some cases. Through, you know, false religion begets false practices. But not in the churches that I've seen that stick and adhere to the gospel. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. This is a liberal ideology. When I pursue my own happiness, and we all, every single one of us here, pursues our own version of happiness apart from Christ, what happens? We start, yeah, chaos, you said. So we just start running into each other and destroying one another. That's what's happening in our society. The very fabric of our liberalism in America is completely unraveling. That's what's happening. So relativism um, reigns supreme. Um, this is, uh, you know, grounded in liberalism. It's grounded in a rad radical individualism, a subjectivism, and it leads people to embrace a, a view of truth that fits their own version of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So they, they conform reality around their own lusts and their own desires. That's what's happening. So obviously morality is relative, and therefore there's a relative view about ethics and behavior. So fit, fill in the blank with any sin you want to commit, and that is going to find... Um, uh, fertile soil in our time today. Just, you need to know that this is increasingly popular in churches today. It's increasingly popular in Christian colleges and universities today. Um, the LGBTQ challenge. You could say that this challenge has pushed the envelope um, and it's, it's uh, one, of the, one of the most, um, one, one of the greatest things to expose our relativism, but it didn't create the spirit of relativism. I think it's found uh, growth and acceleration because of the spirit of relativism that already existed for decades in our country. So this relativizing spirit has simply been exposed by the LGBTQ challenge 
It's been present, though, for a long time in our country. It's been the unquestioned bias in our culture for all morality and ethics. Uh, They say students coming into universities these days, they do not accept absolute truth at all. They, They completely embrace the idea that all truth is relative, that it's socially constructed. And you've, anybody who's telling you that there are absolutes is to be suspected. So absent a concept of an absolute, transcendent, universal, invariant standard of right and wrong, a transcendent law, morality and ethics are simply a matter of personal preference or social construct. That's how people think today. So how a person lives, uh, his, his or her speech, behavior, thought life, all those things are simply a matter of personal choice. Um, Adult consent, agreed-upon boundaries of society at large. And we know um, that morality and ethics, what you see people think about right and wrong and how they actually live that out, their ethics, that's all based on what a person believes. It's all based on what a person trusted and believes to be true or false about reality. So we've said this before for a long time, the foundational elements of a worldview Metaphysics and epistemology, and uh, metaphysics and epistemology, the, the uh, idea of being, um, epistemology, the idea of where we get knowledge, how we know what we know, all of that is the foundation of ethics and morality. So since the culture around us has accepted a materialist version of metaphysical questions, uh, the views on epistemology, through, they, they view that through a strictly empirical lens that all that can be known must be observed, All of that is going to mean that moral and ethical questions become matters of personal preference. It's a random ordering of atoms that inclines some people to feel one way and other people to feel another way. Um, Nothing absolute, everything relative. So that worldview that's pervasive in the secular culture around us and taught in all of our, not just university level, college level, but all the way down through the grades, all the way down to primary school, it's happening, or uh, uh, kindergarten, but it, that's happening at all levels of our, uh, our state education. And that worldview now is entered into the church. It's got a Christian counterpart and it's showing up everywhere. And it sounds like this. You decide what's right for you as God leads you. And so God comes into the equation, right? So as God leads you, you decide what's right for you and I'll decide what's right for me as God leads me. My God is big enough to handle both of our views. I have a personal relationship, and my relationship with God is very special and personal, and it can't be dictated to me by you or anyone else. My personal relationship with God and your personal relationship with God, they may lead us in very different directions, but again, my God is big enough for all of that. Boy, it sounds great, doesn't it? I I mean, it sounds to me like pure poison, but, but to many people that sounds really good. So pastors in pulpits, they spend a lot of time dancing around hard subjects and they, they don't even preach and ex- do, do an expository ministry anymore because they don't want to come across that really hard text that they have to deal with. So they just te- teach topical messages, series. They love series and they have great graphic artwork and stuff on their series on relationships or love or marriage or whatever it is. So they dance around hard subjects. They Pastors refuse to confront sin in the church because that might offend somebody. It might result in that person no longer coming to church. And it's not just about their physical presence, it's about their giving to the church. Um, pastors resort to preaching the part counsel of God's Word, the helpful parts of the Bible, like steps to 
happy marriages, tips for parenting, life skills, leadership skills, all of it becomes more and more like motivational lectures or TED Talks. So the message may seem innocuous for adults in those congregations who've been going to church for a long time. Maybe they just feel like, hey, my pastor's just gotten really practical, that's all. But the generations now in their 40s and below, they have picked up on this non-authoritative nature of modern preaching and they've embraced it with crystal clarity. They understand exactly what's going on and they like it. It suits them just fine. It allows them to fit in with the relativism of the culture, to live the way they want to, and shirk all sense of accountability. Now, I could, to illustrate this, pick a number of examples in today's headlines to illustrate this, but I do want to go back to the LGBTQ question and issue that's facing us. I uh, found a recent program uh, from Al Mohler, his uh, program, The Briefing, painted the picture very well, and I listened to that, and I thought, you know, I'm going to go read those articles and and, uh, go to those stories, because it it intrigued me because of some of the colleges that are in question. He interacted with an article posted on the NPR, National Public Radio website, entitled, Christian Colleges Are Tangled in Their Own uh, LGBT Policies. That was the headline, or the, the title of the article. And I read the NPR story and then listened to the NPR Morning Edition broadcast on which that article is based. The audio was even more disturbing than what I'm about to read to you. Um, But this is from the NPR article. Christian colleges are tangled in their own LGBT policies. Here's the quote. Conservative Christian colleges, once relatively insulated from the culture war, are increasingly entangled in the same battles over LGBT rights and related social issues that have divided other institutions in America. Students and faculty at many religious institutions are asked to accept a faith statement outlining the school's views on such matters as evangelical doctrine, spiritual interpretation, and human sexuality. Those statements often include a rejection of homosexual activity and a definition of marriage as the union of one man and one woman. Changing attitudes on sexual ethics and civil rights, however, are making it difficult for some schools, even conservative ones, to ensure broad compliance with their strict positions. Interesting how it's written, isn't it? Here's a quote, Brad Harper. Millennials are looking at the issue of gay marriage, and more and more they're saying, okay, we know the Bible talks about this, but we just don't see this as as an essential of the faith says Brad Harper, a professor of theology and religious history at Multnomah University and an evangelical Christian institution in Portland, Oregon. LGBT students at Christian schools are also increasingly likely to be open about their own sexual orientation or gender identity. At Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. By the way, a Calvin College name for whom? John Calvin, who would be rolling over in his grave now. At Calvin College, junior Sam Coaster, or Coster, the NPR article doesn't reveal it, but when you listen to the audio, Sam is not a young man, it's a young woman. Um, So junior Sam Coaster, who identifies as queer, finds fellow students to be generally tolerant. Here's what she says, quote, People I've met in the English department, Coaster says, Uh, Even in my dorms, they're like, oh, you're queer? Okay, cool. Do you want to go get pizza? 
Staff and faculty at these Christian schools have to balance a need to attend to their students' personal and spiritual needs with a commitment to their school's faith statements or official positions on sexuality. Again, you see how this is cast. It's cast in terms of these poor people caught in the middle. They really need to come along with a revolution. And, you know, let's get rid of these strict... The strict policies are the issue. These strict faith statements, these strict gender identity descriptions of male and female in the Bible and marriage, that's the problem. These poor people caught in the middle. So, quote, you've got these two values, says Mary Holst, senior chaplain at Calvin. We love our LGBT people. We love our Church of Jesus Christ. We love Scripture. So those of us who do this work are right in the middle of that space. We are living in the tension, end quote. Calvin College is affiliated with the Christian Reformed Church, which holds that homosexual practice is incompatible with obedience to the will of God as revealed in Scripture. Holst leads Bible study groups with her LGBT students and discusses with them the passages that refer to same-sex relationships. And here's Sam Coster again. She says, those are the clobber passages. They're used to clobber queer kids back into being straight. Coster was troubled by those Bible verses at first, but eventually became comfortable with a devout Christian identity and joined the Gay Christian Network. Interesting. They're in Calvin College. Mary Holst leading the Bible study. Now listen to this. This is really important. Sam Coster's mind was eased by troubling Bible verses, and she eventually, quote, eventually became comfortable with a devout Christian identity, and here's why. She says this, quote, When I realized that my faith wasn't necessarily about the church, and it wasn't even necessarily about the Bible, but about my relationship with God, and that God is all-encompassing and loving, I felt free, says Coster. I felt free. A bigger God than all your rules. That's what's being marketed today. Tom Jelton the NPR correspondent responsible for the story, he conducted the interviews and he interviewed a number of people. One of them was Christine Guzman, a student counselor at Azusa Pacific University in California. When I lived in Southern California, I knew many, many Christian families who used to send their kids to Azusa Pacific. It had a reputation as evangelical. Jelton pointed out that Christine Guzman signed a statement endorsing the school's conservative position on marriage, but she won't pass judgment on her LGBT students. And then he quoted Guzman as saying, who am I to play God? Or who are we to say, you know, you have to identify this way. You know, everybody has their relationship with God and it's personal. Yet this, it's Holy Spirit inspired. At least Sam Coster, who, the young woman who identified herself as a queer Christian, she took responsibility for her own Christian relativism when she said, I realized my faith wasn't necessarily about the church or the Bible, but about my relationship with God. She's being very open about her own relativism there. Obviously, it's wrong, but at least she knows her views aren't coming from Scripture. With Christine Guzman of Azusa Pacific University, she's attributing her relativism to the Holy Spirit. That is very irresponsible, especially in her position as a student counselor. And for Mary Holst at Calvin College, who has some kind of leadership in the Gay Christian Network, these ladies, probably very nice people, but they're false teachers. 
they have departed. Neither of them are confronting people like Sam Coster, who's clearly, clearly confused. Rather, they affirm her in her relativism and they steal her in a false profession of faith that inoculates her to the true gospel. She thinks that she can be queer and Christian too. You know, that may look cute and liberating and she may feel very free in her 20s. Give her 20 years and see what that lifestyle does to her. See how it ages her. See how it destroys her. See how it degrades her. This is not love. This is cowardice calling itself courage. There are some among us who are dealing with LGBT issues and those who um, those, they deal with those who want to hold the label gay Christian. Perhaps more common are those who live according to Christian relativism who respond to any probing scrutiny you have for them, any questions, asking, you know, raising biblical concerns in their life. They respond this way. They say, hey, this is my relationship with God. This is my relationship. And that's yours. Don't impose your view of God on me. My God is all-encompassing and loving. And I like it that way. It feels better that way. And by the way, who are you to play God? Who are you to say how someone identifies themselves? You know, everybody has a relationship with God and it's personal. It's Holy Spirit inspired. So let me stop here. I know that's been a mouthful and hard to listen to, but how would you respond to that? If someone tells you, this is my relationship with God and that's yours, and um, don't impose your view of God on me, and I won't do that to you. My God is bigger than all that. And by the way, who are you to play God? Who do you think you are? This is Holy Spirit inspired in me. How are you going to respond to that? Exactly right. I, I think of Matthew 18, one who causes just one of these little ones to stumble. Let a millstone, big, big stone, be fastened around the neck and plunged into the sea. You know what happens when you're plunged into the sea with a big, heavy weight? You actually don't die of suffocation. You die of the pressure of the water crushing you. First, your eardrums. That's happened to me. It hurt. Not a millstone. I didn't have the millstone. Let's <laughs> be clear about that. Um, learned my lesson. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, going down too fast, not being able to clear, and all of a sudden you get that excruciating pain in the ears that just your eardrums burst. But think about it. Keep, keep it on going. That millstone's dragging you to the bottom of the ocean and the pressure just crushes your body. That's a haunting picture. Anyone who causes one of these little ones to stumble, it'd be better for him if millstone tied around the neck. It's haunting. Yeah, inerrancy, authority, sufficiency of Scripture. It, this comes back to an authority issue, Right? Yeah, that's that's right, Joe. And and when you when we talk about when we talk about the doctrine of inspiration, you know what the doctrine of inspiration talks about? It talks about God breathing texts out, the text of Scripture. Holy Spirit inspiration is not for me personally. The Holy Spirit doesn't inspire me. He inspired written words. Okay, so we need to keep that clear. That you can see the lack of clarity in their doctrine, even as they say something like that. My relationship with God is Holy Spirit inspired. If you have a relationship with God, it's Holy Spirit caused. 
but not, you know, you're regenerated by God, right? Regenerated by His Spirit. So they don't even have a right view of category of inspiration. They don't even understand that. But yeah, it comes back to an authority issue, as you were saying. In fact, they've just crafted for themselves an idol. They're actually talking about some, some God that's not in Scripture. It takes time to get to that conversation. Yeah, You stick with 2 Timothy 3.16. Exactly right. Thank you for bringing that out. Yeah, That's exactly right. It's a great, great point. Um, our feelings can either accord with reality or not accord with reality, right? Sometimes you put the right person on a roller coaster and their feelings are going to be like, I'm going to die. And they feel very frightened that they're going to die, but they end up safely at the, at the end of the roller coaster in the ride and they get off, right? So they're fine. Their feeling doesn't accord with reality. Exactly, the moral compass that they have. They don't have actually any kind of um, <coughs> an explanation for where that comes from in their worldview. Okay, so their, their, um, their view of metaphysics, their view of authority, all that does not result in their own moral compass that they sense of, sense of right and wrong. And that only comes from Christianity. Okay, good. Thank you for all of that. So, um, uh, just, I'll just say this, that on the one hand, it's, it's a difficult error to deal with and, and can take a long time and a lot of patience to talk with people who are kind of wrapped up in this kind of thinking. Uh, because their, 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 their mind is so far afield from a moral compass. But, um, you know, because if a person sees his own opinions and not the Bible as the ultimate authority and they hold fast to that belief after you confront him about it, you're not dealing with a Christian, no matter what they say about themselves. You're just, you're just not dealing with a Christian. And so, on the one hand, it's difficult, but on the other hand, that kind of makes it easy. When you see that they've embraced themselves or their preferences or the society around them as their sense of right and wrong, their morality, their truth, their authority, they're not a Christian. So it kind of makes it easy. What do you do in that case? You go back to the gospel. You go back to the gospel and, and call them to repentance and faith. So it is, it is a perplexing time we live in, but you just need to know that the church of Christ was planted during a perplexing time. I mean, you want to talk about moral confusion? You want to talk about total ambiguity and people not knowing which way was up and down and black and white? It was then. It was in the first century. They knew nothing. And look at, here we are 2,000 years later. We're a church. We're a church here. Christ is doing his work. So that's just one of many errors <coughs> that are dominating and perplexing the landscape today. And you just need to get ready, everyone, because the spirit of the age is eroding any resistance that exists in the culture to the LGBTQ revolution. Even the Mormons are feeling the pressure to give in. I read a story the other day that, they, that I think they will eventually cave. I, I once ministered to a man who struggled terribly with homosexuality, terrible abuse in his past. It's just a tragic, heartbreaking story with this guy. And ministered to him for a long time. Uh, he ended up wandering off. But he, he had come, when I first met him, he had come out of Mormonism. And in Mormonism, they were trying to deal with his, his homosexual feelings that were just deeply, deeply seated. And, and they were telling him this. You know, here's the deal, sir. You're, you're um, in the pre-existence. Your spirit was a more noble spirit than most other spirits. And so Heavenly Father and brother, our brother Jesus and Joseph Smith, they wanted to send you down to deal with this struggle of homosexuality because you're a more noble spirit. And when that kind of thinking is 
is supported. It's actually supported by their theology. It's very consistent with their theology. When that kind of thinking is supported, it's not long before that whole organization is going to cave. You never know which way the wind's going to blow with Pope Francis and the Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Communion could wholesale sweep into this very kind of revolution and embrace it. They have no problem speaking against accepted canonized doctrine. But, and so I think we're going to find ourselves more and more marginalized and alone, uh, but we're not alone, are we? We're, Jesus said, I will be with you, as long as we stick with his agenda, his purpose. So what we need to talk about now is a, a singular strategy, really uh, almost a one-size-fits-all strategy for evangelizing these people, and I would say all these sub-Christian isms, but any other kind of person as well, any kind of cult or or false religion, major religion, minor religion, any kind of secularist. Um, but especially, we're going to apply this right now to the isms uh, that we have been talking about. Um, how do we evangelize the inoculated evangelicals? Like any false worldview, the biblical counterfeits in particular, you have to remain submitted to the standard of Scripture. So just keep that that bulletproof jugular text uh, 1 Peter 3.15 in your mind in your hearts sanctify Christ the Lord you know he is our God he is our Lord he calls us shots over our thinking and so whatever he says which is in scripture that's what we believe and that's how we speak and that's how we evangelize we do that consistently with him as our Lord so you're a Christian as such you start and end with faith in Christ you reason from a presupposition of faith in God, faith in Christ, faith in Scripture. Your thinking is submitted to Him, and your speech is submitted to Him. You do not speak lies. You do not compromise with the world in how you speak. Make no apologies for that. You're humble, you're bold, but you make no apologies for it. So armed with that mentality, you come to one of these sub-Christian friends of yours, antinomian, a moralist, a liberal, minimalist, nominalist, uh, politicist, uh, relativist. And you, you talk to this person and you enter into the conversation in a spirit of loving helpfulness. You're not there to be antagonistic or argumentative, but you are going to be firm and truthful with this person. So what do you do? First of all, you want to look for signs that this professor of Christ, whether this person is or is not a true possessor of Christ, Okay, you want to because you understand that someone, some people's true Christians can get caught up in bad religion. True Christians can get caught up in some of these isms and go to these churches. Sometimes they've grown up in a church, and all of a sudden this faithful pastor cycles out, and a new pastor comes in, and he's got a different agenda, and so they just are swallowing it and learning, and they're like, something seems a little strange, but I guess it's just different, you know, just different than he's got a different way. So maybe you're dealing with a true Christian. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're dealing with someone who isn't a Christian at all. But look for signs that the possessor or this professor of Christ may or may not be a possessor of Christ. So what would some of those signs be that you're going to look for? What are some signs that a, someone who professes Christ may not possess Christ? Okay, that's excellent. So Galatians 5, you've got two lists in Galatians 5. One is of the works of the flesh are evident, and they are these. And then the other one is, but the fruit of the Spirit is, and there are these. So you go through those lists, and you say, what does this person's 
Life, behavior, speech, more approximate. The first list or the second? Great, good, go to Scripture. We're, we want to we wanna see is this person who professes Christ and says, yes, I'm a Christian. They're caught up in one of these isms, but they say, I am, I'm a Christian. What are you looking for to, tell, to see if that's legitimate? Okay, good, good. So you're going to compare their life with Scripture. Good. Okay, so Lila, she recommends recon by fire. You know what that is? You, you, go ahead and, you go ahead and shoot a bullet out there and see where the enemy starts shooting back at you. And then you're like, oh, now I know. Call in the fast movers and bomb that area, right? So I, lo- I love that response, Lila. Recon by fire. Almost like she's trained that way. Uh, that's good. But yeah, so, so smoke them out by saying, hey, what do you think of the whole LGBT issue? That's a good question. Or whatever. What do you think of unpaid par- you know, parking tickets or whatever it is? Great, great answer. Are they obedient to the word or not obedient to the word? And sometimes you have to watch for a while. Good. Yeah. So, so good at going through the gospel, but I think, I think when you're going through the gospel, you do have to kind of unpack it a little bit further because they'll say, oh yeah, God's holy and I'm a sinner, but they're talking more in, in terms that th- they can say that and still hold to cultural views of what sin and righteousness is. So, They'll say, well, you know, we, in the church, we've, we've got the queer thing wrong, you know, and, and we, you know, because we got the, you can see, we got the homosexual thing wrong, we're dealing with that now, and that's based on we got the feminism thing wrong, you know, we didn't allow women to be pastors, we got that wrong, and I mean, the church has really been, and we're evolving. Now, they still think in terms of God is holy and I'm a sinner, they're using your language, but they think something completely different. You have to unpack that. In true, biblically defined, biblically circumscribed love that comes only from God, if you watch them doing that, that's exactly right. Okay, good. Ask testimonies. Good, good. See, see how is it they came to Christ? What gospel did they actually believe? That's really actually, that smokes a lot out right there. Yeah, thank you. That's a great diagnostic question right there. If, 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 you, if you were to die right now, stand before God, and he said, looks at you and says, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? It's inter- and just leave it open-ended. Don't help them at all. Just let them talk. And you'll f- it's very interesting to find the answers that they'll give you. Good. That's really good. Where their authority is. Subjective, within the self, or is it divine authority? God. And, what, and where do they put that? Thank you. Yeah, when they're, when they're playing games with Scripture, they're not being sincere. And, it, you know, just, just to that point, I appreciate your honesty about, and candor about that, Nick, because sometimes... Sometimes we do want to affirm people and say, you know, I know you're being sincere and you believe that. And, and it's okay. We've all done that. It's kind of call, it's called fear of man. It's called wanting to flatter people and uh, make them feel good. So sometimes it's okay to come back and say, hey, I just would really like to ask your forgiveness. I was not, not completely truthful with you. And they say, oh, yeah, sure, what is it? Well, I called you sincere, and actually that's not true. Here's what I'm concerned about. And you start to unpack it, but you kind of need to say, you know, to say, say that. And, and that, you know, it gets their attention. You know, it really does. So, yeah, very, very real for you, isn't it? As you're looking at flesh and blood friends in, in the eyes and you're having to talk about these kind of things with them and you're concerned for their soul. You really are. This is, this is very, very practical, real life stuff. Thank you. So, thank you. So, what's your, what's your just to wrap up this point, Look for signs that the possessor, the professor may not be a possessor. 
Um, and you're going to know them by their fruits. Jesus made it very clear. You'll know them by their fruits. Look for their behavior. Uh, compare it to Scripture. Look in their speech, their behavior, their thinking, their habits, their attitudes, all of those things. Those are, and I can unpack that further, but let's move on. Then you want to ask, as you see these things and you identify these things in someone's life, then you want to ask diagnostic questions to kind of start a conversation. So if you see bad signs or you don't see genuine signs, good signs of genuine faith, here's some questions you could ask. You'd say, hey, what church do you attend? Or, hey, um, what's your pastor preaching through right now? Um, What interests you? What have you been learning from Scripture lately? Um, How about this one? What kind of gospel do you share with other people when you evangelize? That's going to tell you two things. Number one, do they evangelize? And number two, what do they share when they evangelize? Ask them those just some questions. I mean, there's a whole bunch of questions we could ask, right? So make sure you understand the gospel when you ask them, hey, what gospel do you share? And unpack those things. So other questions to ask hey, what do you think about the importance of repenting of sin and pursuing holiness in your life? Tell me some examples. How are you doing? What are you doing with that? Um, ask, the, ask the person you have questions about. Say, hey, have you ever met somebody who claims to be a Christian but isn't a Christian? How do you know that? Um, ask this question. Hey, what do you believe is going to happen to you when you die? And they'll inevitably say, I'm going to go to heaven, right? Then you say, and why do you want to go there? Find out what it is they like about heaven. Many people aren't going there because they want to worship God forever. If you discern you're talking with someone who professes Christ but may not be a Christian, may have embraced a sub-Christian gospel, ask, so first thing, you look for signs a professor of Christ may not be a possessor of Christ. Then you ask diagnostic questions to start a conversation. After that, you ask permission-oriented questions. And you say something like this, hey, if you were wrong about your profession of faith, would you want to know that? Hey, if, um, can I ask you a few questions that challenge your thinking on that point a little bit? Um, hey, uh, I need to, I, I've got some concerns that are on my heart just from some things you've been sharing. Would it be okay if I share those concerns with you? I love you and I'm just hearing the things you're talking about and I, I just want to make sure that kind of, I, s- I kind of unburden my conscience about this to make sure that sh- we're clear. We have a, a straightforward relationship. Those are really good. When you ask those kind of permission-oriented questions, generally the person will say, oh, sure, go ahead. You know, if it's, if it's someone that you are friends with or an acquaintance with, they'll generally invite you in to their own chagrin. The, they'll invite you in to say that. Some people will say, you know what? I'm good. Don't really want to hear it. Then you know. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't give what is holy to dogs. Um, You know, literally, take the shoes off your feet. Knock off the dust. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Um, But that is when they say, no, you don't have, I don't want to talk about it. Um, Say, you know what? I hear you. I'm going to be praying for you. But I just want you to know in a couple weeks, I'm going to ask the same question again. (laughs) So you don't let them go, you know, just for the moment. So, then ask some deeper, so number, n- n- another thing to do is ask some deeper questions and look for evidence in you, a- in asking these deeper questions, look for evidence of regeneration. What are some questions you need to ask to smoke out whether or not this person's truly regenerate? Ask a question like, what do you love the most? 
What do you love the most? What do you love to do the most? If you had nothing but time, money is all taken care of, everything's taken care of, how would you use that time? Ask, um, ask the opposite question. Hey, what do you hate the most? What bothers you the most about yourself? Um, ask the question, listen, um, everybody fears something, right? What, 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 what are you most afraid of? What, what kind of wakes you up with cold shivers at night? In a regenerate person, you know how they'll respond to these questions? They'll say things like, what do you love the most? I love God and his word. If I had all the time in the world and all the things and money were taken care of and everything, I, I'd spend all my time reading and studying his word and worshiping him and telling, him, telling other people about him. If everything was taken care of, everything's financially set, I'm going after people. I, I just, I love God and I love people. You ask him, what do you hate the most? I hate my sin. I absolutely hate my sin. I hate deception. I hate false doctrine. Those are things you're looking for. Um, what, do you hate, what bothers you the most about yourself? Oh, the fact that my life isn't completely conformed to Christ. I can't stand that. Um, what do you fear the most? What wakes you up night, at night in cold sweats? You know, the fact that I could one day do something that denied Christ my li- by my lifestyle, my behavior that would bring reproach to his name, reproach to his church, that causes me no end of concern. I never want to stand before him and hear him say, Lord, hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you. I am concerned about it. I mean, I, I know the gospel, I know the truth, but yeah, if you want to know what kind of gives me cold sweats, it's those kinds of things. So that's a regenerate person that you're talking to. Re- unregenerate people do not speak like that. Ask the question, why do you want to go to heaven? What's so important about heaven? If they say anything short of, God is there and I love God. Christ is there and I want to worship Christ. If they say any things that are short of that, like, you know, finally, no more worries. <laughs> finally, no more of, you know, people or, you know, whatever they say. Uh, streets of gold or whatever. Um, you know, you're looking for signs of regeneration. Okay, so once you see those things, once you ask questions, you're, you're asking, um, you're trying to discern if a professing Christian is truly a possessing Christian. You want to ask diagnostic questions to kind of start a conversation. You want to ask the person's permission to get in a little deeper. And as you get in a little deeper, you want to start to ask questions about, that smoke out whether or not this person is regenerate. And then after that, you want to spend time helping that person see the deficiencies. And that those deficiencies, their departures from Scripture are gravely serious that they lead to either eternal heaven or eternal hell. Eternity is in the balance. And I'm concerned, my friend, if you die in the condition you're in, you may not stand before Christ in worship, but you may go straight to hell for eternity. I can't, my conscience can't abide by that. Here, let me tell you where I, I'm seeing some things that are flawed in your thinking. This whole antinomianism thing you're in, this whole grace, grace, grace thing, but you're actually, your life isn't conformed to holiness. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches a different gospel, one that rescues us from sin. So on you go. So then teach the person to repent. Okay, any final questions? I know it's a, I rushed through that a, a little bit just because of the time, but any uh, final questions on that that you want to ask? Any comments you want to make?
Anybody want to go home and get some food? Let me close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time we've had tonight together. We thank you for uh, your word that is so clear. We thank you for making it clear to us by causing us to be uh, born again to a living hope. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and the clear conscience that comes from a completely forgiven sin. Um, The fact that our sins are separated as far as the east is from the west that you've loved us with an everlasting love and you've put that love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And now you're teaching us how to practically love one another and to love others. We pray that you would give us strength and motivation and joy in sharing the gospel, that we would be bold, humble yet bold with people, straightforward in dealing with the gospel and in no way being cowardly or flattering or affirming um, of things that we should never affirm. We pray that the Lord Jesus Christ would be sanctified and set apart as Lord in our hearts and that his lordship would govern everything that we think and say and do. We thank you for holding us fast and we just ask for your continued kindness on us as we go into this week and as we go into the weeks to come. We pray that we would act, speak, think distinctively Christian and mature us in the conformity of the world. In his name we pray.